listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science, coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H. Hello, and welcome to This World of Humans. I am your host, Nathan Lentz. Your producer is Sam Anderson. And today we're going to talk about the hunt for what makes human beings different than our closest relatives. And of course, our closest relatives are the chimpanzees. Uh, humans and chimps diverged from our common ancestor oh, around 7 million years ago. Uh, and we know that a lot has changed since then. But what we're still working out is exactly what has changed and how. Obviously, this is an important question because it gets right at the core of what makes us human. Uh, we know that humans and chimps share, oh, 98.5% of our DNA, plus or minus. Uh, and that means that we're really only 1.5% different, genetically anyway. Uh, those differences are sprinkled around the genome, but they're not spread out evenly. Uh, and that's the point of our conversation today. There are what we call as hot spots, where a lot has changed or specific things have changed in a very specific region. And obviously, these very small islands of change are really good candidates for our hunt uh, in the search for what makes us different. Uh, now, of course, some of the genetic differences that we see between humans and chimps is in non-coding DNA. And if you remember back to the first episode of this podcast, uh, we talked about junk DNA and other non-coding DNA whose functions we really don't even understand yet. Uh, so it's unclear how much of the genetic difference we see between human and chimps really means anything. Uh, but a new paper has just come out that describes a breakthrough in our attempt to describe the evolutionary changes that have occurred in coding regions, so specifically in our genes. Uh, and that paper is published in a journal called Molecular Biology and Evolution. And fortunately for us, we have one of the authors of that study on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Michael Campbell is on the faculty of Howard University in the Department of Biology. Dr. Campbell, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so first off, help us understand the differences between coding and non-coding DNA. What do we mean when we say these terms? Well, when we refer to coding regions, what we're referring to are segments of DNA that code for amino acids that ultimately give rise to protein. Whereas non-coding regions don't give rise to protein, but they do have an impact on the functioning of genes. And when we talk about the differences between humans and other species, would you say that we have a lot of new genes that they don't have, or we have basically the same genes that our, our relatives have? Right. I would say we basically have the same genes, but what many scientists have argued is that likely it's the differences in the expression of genes that make the difference between chimpanzees and humans. So... Uh, we have mostly the same genes as chimpanzees, but how much and when and where they get expressed might be different. But what you're saying is even, even the gene itself might be slightly different versions of the same gene between humans and chimpanzees. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what our paper focuses on is basically looking for these regions within genes that are unique to humans and very different compared to chimpanzees. And so it's these unique changes, these replacement changes that lead to changes in amino acid sequences that are important in evolution. Okay, so now I wanna to attempt to actually go through the method a little bit. So ma mass PRF, first of all, what, what does that mean, mass PRF? And then can you describe what it actually does, you know, the computational work that it does uh, in a nutshell? Okay, so mass PRF stands for model average site selection via Poisson random field. So essentially, we're, we're looking at divergence and polymorphism data. 
And so divergence data is data that's basically when you compare the chimp to the human, these are sites that are different in humans. They're fixed in humans, for example, and they're different when you compare it to the chimpanzee. Okay, so you have non-synonymous sites or replacement sites. And so within humans, they can be polymorphic. Or when you compare... And what do you mean by polymorphic? You mean among different humans, we have different right, versions exactly, of Right, exactly, exactly. Okay. Or when you compare human and chimp, they can be divergent. So you've got these replacement sites or non-synonymous sites that are polymorphic within humans and then divergent or different when you compare it to the chimpanzee. So essentially, when we talk about natural selection, we're talking about a process by which certain inherited um, changes are beneficial. They increase the survival of individuals and in populations, and they allow individuals to differentially leave offspring. As you said, every once in a while you get, you get a mutation that enhances an individual's success, uh, reproductive success, survival success, what have you. Um, and so uh, I guess that's what you are looking for in your paper. You're looking for specific changes in a gene that seem to have been not by chance, but have been accumulated specifically, uh, which then implies that it must have given some sort of benefit. Is that right? some kind of selective advantage. And so what we're interested in is looking for these, these nucleotide changes, particularly multiple changes that are clustered together that happen within genes and they're beneficial somehow. We, we infer because we see these signatures of natural selection, particularly positive selection, that somehow these mutations have a functional impact. Right, I see. Because, uh, and you said clusters of mutations, so what do you mean by that? So we're talking about mutations that are in very close proximity. So we're looking at groupings of mutations. And so what our method basically looks for is it, it infers selection intensity of each nucleotide within a gene. And what we happen to see in many cases is that we see clustering of these nucleotides that are in close proximity to each other. So for example, we see a clustering of replacement mutations. So these are mutations that give rise to a new amino acid that may cluster within exon 2 of a particular gene. And so the inference is, well, there must be something functionally important about this particular region of the gene. I understand. So your method uh, simply looks for uh, potentially important mutations or clusters of mutations, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what it does. That's up to that's up to other scientists to go in and, and search through all of your results and look for these, what these hotspots do. Exactly. Okay. And I do want to, I want to back up one second and, and define something for our listeners um, that you said that I think is actually really key here. Um, you talked about, uh, for example, X and exon. Uh, you, you see clusters of mutations uh, that pop up in a specific exon. Well, listeners, what he's talking about is uh, genes are made up of different sort of blocks called exons, and there's, they're spaced out uh, within the gene with introns in between them, and those introns are eventually removed when the gene is transcribed, but the exons contain the actual coding information. And these individual blocks of the gene often, not always, but often represent a domain of the protein, like a certain region of the enzyme or whatever it is that has a specific function. So these units are not just random blocks, generally. They often refer to a specific sort of functional part of the protein. And so what Dr. Campbell's telling us is if he sees clusters in a specific exon, in a specific block, uh, that might indicate that that block has been under selective pressure. It's been, mutations have em emerged that give that block a better function or different function 
that might help explain the evolution that's happened in the last 7 million years. Dr. Campbell, did I get that right? Did you, or you want to amplify anything I said? <laughs> no, no, that, that was great. That was great. Okay. So now I want to talk about the method itself because it's super complicated. Um, but w- what you're looking at is, I know, I, I know that you're looking at many genomes because, there's, of course, there's not just one human genome. We, uh, there's more than 7 billion of us on this planet, so there are at least 7 billion uh, genomes, and that's just uh, the humans that are still alive. So you looked at, I think, 1,000 genomes from the 1,000 Genome Project. Uh, how did you, so start from there. You have 1,000 human genomes. What happens next? So what we did was we took a subset of individuals from the 1,000 genomes. And so these individuals cross many different populations from around the world. And so essentially what we wanted was a representation of humans. So we're not looking at humans from any single population, but across populations, because we're interested in the changes that are unique to humans, not necessarily those changes that are unique to populations. So we took this subset of, um, of individuals from the 1,000 genomes, and we applied our mass PRF method. And um, essentially, we detected or inferred selection intensity on a nucleotide basis, so on a site-by-site basis within a particular protein coding gene. So this method focuses on, again, as you said, protein coding sequences of genes. And so we're really just interested in the coding sequence. So we take all of those exons and we put them together, they form a transcript, and that is what we use our, our, our software on. And so we have human sequences, we also have a chimp sequence, so the coding region from the chimpanzee, and we do this comparative analysis. At the beginning, you said you used uh, large numbers of genomes, and you did that so that you're not focusing on differences that might just have appeared uh, in different human populations, right? So you want to find, you sort of want to subtract all the variability we see within our species to just focus on that which really is common to all humans, right? Exactly, exactly. So these are changes that are common to all humans, they unite our species. Okay. And then, of course, the chimpanzee is the reference of that which has changed uh, from there. And, and then you want to look at these hotspots. So does that mean that if it's under intense selection, that it's changed in different ways? Or do you see, um, you know, is there different ways that you can get the same sort of mutational effect? Well, the inference is when we see a mutation that is that it has occurred across all these individuals from different populations. And the inference then is that it must be specific to humans. If this mutation, for example, is very different compared to the chimpanzee, it's something that is specialized to humans. It's something that's unique to humans okay. relative to the chimpanzee. Right. And so it's those types of changes that we're really, really interested in. And ideally, if we could catalog all those, we'd sort of have the genetic roadmap um, of what makes a human a human and not, and not a different kind of ape. Exactly, exactly. But what's important to note as well, and, and you said this at the beginning, is that we are focusing on protein coding genes. And so they do comprise a, a small subset of the total human genome. And so a lot of our genome is non-coding. And, and so a lot of these changes that we do see in humans or that are specific to humans could very well be regulatory, right? So what we're more focused on is, well, 
okay, what are some of the changes that are occurring within protein coding genes, which could be a, you know, a small subset of all the changes that may have happened in the human lineage compared to the chimpanzees. Right, because from what I understand, a lot of what we know about the mutations in our brain development uh, and speech development specifically uh, just focus on expression levels of certain genes in the brain at a certain time. So it's not that the gene itself is any different necessarily. It's just when it comes on and how much it comes on. So probably you need both uh, the coding and non-coding to get you anywhere close to this, this answer. But that's, it's interesting you should say that because some of the genes that we looked at um, in our paper actually play a role in brain development. And so we sort of see that in protein coding genes, there are these unique changes. Yeah, so I assume you mean one of them is SLC6A5. So that's a transporter uh, of some kind. Um, I know automatically it's a transporter because of its gene name, SLC. But what, what does this gene do, and what did you find interesting about it? Well, this particular gene is believed to play a role in things like hearing, for example, um, localization of sound. Interesting. Right? Also, there's another gene called GRIN2C which is, it plays a role in um, synaptic transmission. So that's related to cognition. And so these are changes, both um, hearing sound localization and synaptic changes are very important for development because with the synaptic changes, because of human culture, because we use stone tools during human evolutionary history, we have to have a memory, right? We have to be able to learn and to be able to transmit this information from one generation to the next. So you would expect to see some, what, quite a bit of brain development to facilitate this type of behavior. And um, it looks like the gene, in, in the paper you focused on a series of genes. Now, did you, you know, sort of select these genes and then go out and look for these mutational regions? Or is this, are these genes that, the, that your method spit back at you as potentially important? Right, so we did this, this part of the analysis in two ways. So one way was we took genes that we knew were under selection using other methods. And so we wanted to see, okay, how did our method compare to other methods in terms of identifying genes under selection? And so what we found was that it was very good. So genes that were inferred to be under selection, we inferred to be under selection, but was what, in addition to that, what our method showed was within particular regions of the protein coding gene, you have these mutations that are specifically the targets of, of natural selection. And so um, that was one way that we did it to kind of confirm you know, whether or not our method was working. And then the other way we went on and then looked at genes that there wasn't really a lot of information about whether or not um, these genes were under selection. So other studies infer these genes to be pretty much neutrally evolving. And so what we did then was that we applied our method to those particular genes from across the genome and then we were able to either detect selection or we didn't detect selection. So our method was in agreement with um, other methods or they weren't. And we found something that the other methods did not find. So in, in some cases, even if we knew a gene or thought we knew a gene that must have been under selection and therefore important to our evolution, you, your work helped to identify what, what particular spot was under selection because it wasn't just the whole gene at once, it was specific regions. Do I have that correct? Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's the take-home method of our, our method. So, um, so what, do you, what do you think is the most interesting finding of 
uh, in the search for genes and, and even regions within genes uh, that your method produced? What is the, the, the one that you've e either most surprising or the one that gives us the most insight into what makes us human? Oh, it's this site-by-site um, inference of selection intensity. That is very different compared to methods that we've used previously. And so when you look at a, a protein coding region and you're able to infer selection intensity um, on a site-by-site -site basis, so instead of giving, getting an overall value for a gene, like a gene-wide value for selection intensity, you have this kind of site-by-site um, inference of selection intensity, you can kind of infer small regions of the genome that are under selection. And you can't get that when you have just a single value for an entire gene. And so that's, that's the power of this method, and, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love about it. So when we were working on it, I just kept saying, I just, this is really cool. I'm, I'm really, really proud of this work. Well, you should be. It's, it's very fascinating, and I think it will open up more avenues of research. And that's, that's sort of what I want to talk about is uh, what do you, what's the next steps with this particular method, but also, and, and so maybe that's part one of my question, what do you do next from here? But then part two of my question is, uh, what does this lead to by potentially other researchers? So we developed the method, but we're hoping that other people will use the method and hopefully they can then move on and sort of infer the function of these changes that are identified using MassPRF. So one other project that I'm actually working on with my students is we want to look at more of these genes. So there are about 22,000 genes in the human genome. And so what we want to do is analyze all of them using MassPRF and sort of understand, well, okay, what are some of these mutational changes in protein coding genes that could be important for human evolution? And I think that's something that's never been done before. And I think that will yield some very, very interesting results. But ultimately, all we can do with this is sort of identify or infer selection and infer functional sites. It'll be great for other scientists to then come in and say, hey, well, let's take a look at these sites more carefully and let's do some bench work, some experimental work to understand, well, what these mutations are actually doing. And then once we understand that, we'll have a more holistic picture of gene evolution, of human evolution, and I think that ultimately will be really cool if we can combine these different areas of research to sort of create this more holistic picture of human evolution. Right, so your method um, sort of takes an unbiased approach, looks broadly, um, and then it's really up to the next step to individually look at every gene to, to try to guess at and then test what the function of that mutation might have been. So that there's no substitute for the one-by-one -one approach when it comes to figuring out what the mutation actually does. Is that right? Absolutely. And so what's really interesting as well is that for immunity genes, I think this could be very, very important for developing therapeutics. So as I said before, if we can mimic and, and magnify the effects of these quote-unquote beneficial mutations, perhaps it could be very important for fighting viruses, for fighting um, bacteria, parasites, things like that. Okay, so tell me, what gene do you find the, the most interesting uh, uh, mutational hotspots in? The ones that we mentioned before, these genes that play a role in synaptic transmission. So when we see these changes within particular um, regions of the coding gene, for example, GRIN2C or SLC6A5, um, those genes are, are really the most fascinating ones for us because they, they sort of speak to um, changes that are unique to humans, changes that we know through um, anthropological studies. And when we compare the chimpanzee brain to the human brain, or we look at the 
look at hominids and we infer their brain size and you compare that to humans, we can sort of see that changes have taken place during human evolutionary history. And so in terms of the fossil evidence, we, we can see that. But now in terms of genetics, we can see that as well. And so you can have this marrying of these two lines of evidence to, to, um, to show that, yeah, we've had these significant changes. Not only do we see it in the fossil record, but we see it in our genomes. We have a record of these changes in the human genome. And for me, that's fascinating. So what, I, what I'm curious about is uh, we, have, we now have whole genomes of Neanderthals uh, and Denisovans. So, so what about... What about, I mean, because we share a recent common ancestor with Neanderthals a lot more recently than with chimpanzees, something like 800,000 years ago, maybe a million years ago at the most. Now that you've got this algorithm all warmed up, why not throw some Neanderthal genomes in there and see what you get? It was, it's very interesting you should say that because when we were developing this, I kept throwing the word Neanderthal around because I was so excited about doing this. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely one thing that we can do in the future as well. I mean, that, that would be really, really exciting. And, and since, uh, since you brought it up, what are you doing next? Well, right now, I'm focused on um, human populations. So instead of looking at changes that are specific to humans, I'm doing more population-based work. So understanding the connections between evolutionary history, um, genetic variation, and disease susceptibility. And so, um, interestingly, um, we've been publishing papers um, looking at uh, this particular question, uh, focusing on immunity. And so, um, so that's, that's what I've been doing right now. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, thanks so much, Dr. Campbell. It was a very interesting conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you about my research. Uh, this has been another episode of This World of Humans. Our guest was Dr. Michael Campbell from Howard University, and we wish you all a great week. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently funded by John Jay College, the City University of New York, and Vision Learning. For science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H.